Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section, learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Naylor's Natter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Naylor's Natter. My name is Maria Cunningham and I'm Head of Education for the Teacher Development Trust. Today the order of the podcast is going to go slightly differently, so you'll hear from TDT and our section first, before we hand over to Phil, who's going to be talking. The Teach Development Trust are the national charity for effective CPD in schools and colleges, but often it feels like quite a lot of this discussion around policy and practice as well is really focused on primary and secondary schools, which is why I wanted to talk today to Steve Poland, who is a consultant for the TDT and has quite a lot of experience working in the post-16 sector. So, Steve, would you mind introducing yourself to the Naylor's Natter listeners um, and a bit about your background? Oh, yeah, thanks, Maria. Um, I've worked in post-16 education for most of my professional life. I started as a teacher, um, working in further education, and then the next sort of promotion was CPD manager, so I had several years working in CPD before eventually going over the fence and becoming an HR director. So I worked in a, large, a number of colleges as, as, as the HR director and I've been working freelance for the last 10 years in the charity sector and in the education sector, but more recently primarily within the sixth form college sector. Uh, it's been quite interesting working for TDT and thinking about CPD in schools and then going back into the sector and seeing similarities and differences. I think one of the things that has really struck me recently is how intense the year is in colleges, often from the beginning of the year. There's that really intense period of time from late August into early September where the scramble for numbers and for mm. class sizes, you have to make lots of changes. So every year colleges go through a kind of trauma of are we going to hit our target numbers? And through till October, the, the obsession really is about retention, mm. um, making sure they have the numbers to to justify the income for the following year because they have lack funding. So the, the period of time in which you can do quality CPD is, is, is quite limited in the sense that yeah. you, know, you get part, you get to October when perhaps people can take a deep breath and, and then once you get past Christmas then you're stuck in the planning for next year and exams and so on. So I don't think it's any different from schools but I'm just more conscious of the, the two things of time and money. Yeah, um, and those are obviously, with all our work at TDT, with our network of schools and our Excellence Hubs project, those are the two most common barriers that people talk about is time mm, and money. Mm. So it sounds like there are some really common challenges there. Mm. Are there any other key challenges that you think are, are quite specific to the post-16 sector? I think Ofsted hangs over everything, unfortunately, but it does. And uh, people want to improve the quality of provision, but they've always got a weather eye on Ofsted, depending on what their last Ofsted inspection was. So it does have a big influence on CPD priorities. Uh, I think within the post-16 sector, there's, there are sort of three large constituencies. One is the teaching constituency, but there's also a very large constituency around um, student support, and then there's a, the business support. And it's interesting that I think that's probably reminded me that the, the student support side in colleges is often quite a large cohort of staff, and trying to align CPD for teachers with CPD for, for student support and for support staff. I mean, I think we've seen that when we've done visits to colleges, that um, trying to provide 
CPD for all of those constituencies can be mm. quite a challenge. Yeah, so Steve, you and I went to visit um, one particular college and did a CPD audit review, mm. which is the TDT's framework of what makes effective CPD, and we did that a few months ago. And absolutely, as you say, I think that provision for support staff is even more of a priority in those cases. But what it really showed me was that there are some examples of really great practice going on. In the case of where we went, which was Joseph Chamberlain College in Birmingham, I know we were really impressed with the way that senior leaders in the school were reporting to governors, and governors were really well engaged and informed about CPD. And staff were really in tune with their training needs as well, because they're so broad in in colleges often, you know, it's often quite vocational or some really practical skills. Uh, and so when they're listened to and staff feel like they have a channel to be able to feed them back and get immediate satisfaction on CPD, it was really reinforcing their sense of contribution to the whole programme, I think. Do you have any kind of more general top tips or advice for those working in the post-16 sector? I've seen something really interesting recently in the college I'm doing some work for at the moment, where it is very student-centred very student-orientated, I mean, excellently so. Um, but all of the staff have a responsibility for engaging with the students. And that means that people who work in business support roles all have a part to play uh, in terms of engaging with students, so whether it's supervising sessions or just being around the organisation, because there's a finite number of adults. And I've often worked in places where it's quite easy if you're on the, the business support side to, to be in your office and you wouldn't know that there are students outside. But when we went to Joseph Chamberlain, it was interesting that the people who were engaging with the students were then looking at opportunities for moving in different directions. And I think it's kind of common sense that says if you work in a school or a college, then you should engage with the business of the college. If you, you, know, if you were making cars or if you were making cakes, or you want to engage in the projects and I think. So one tip, I think, is that everybody in, organi in, in education organisations should engage with the business of the organisation one way, either through their own development or by engaging with students and um, putting on all of us, especially on the sports staff side, can do things with students, whether it's offering them work shadowing, work placements. I've volunteered to do some sessions with students talking about what's an employment contract or why join a trade union. Part of that thing about helping young people to engage with and be prepared for the world outside and have loads of experience. Mm -hmm. So I think from that point of view, that, that's CPD from my point of view. It's kind of, it's, it's a developmental thing. Yeah. Um, I think we've seen examples in some schools we've gone to where the support staff have taken over the curriculum for an afternoon where people have done sessions with with children in particular rather than with adults and yeah. you know, how to bake a cake. And I was just thinking it adds to the enjoyment of the role. It, it opens people's eyes to what teaching and learning is about. It gets rid of the us and them. Mm. Um, so I think from that point of view, engaging with the, the business of the, of the college is, is really important. I've seen some really good examples. Where I think sometimes in, in college people have to work in isolation because they may be the only person who teaches I think an example like law, for instance, or a particular syllabus. Um, mm. So I've seen some good examples of where local colleges have networked and, and formed partnerships, some of them you know, looser than others, but there are some formal partnerships, in, certainly in the sixth form sector, mm. which bring together people who have the same... You know, so you, the, the six law teachers, one of each, work in a different school, and they can come together. So there's some economies of scale to be made within, within the sixth form sector. And again, that's provided an opportunity for support people to, to get together and to share good practice. 
So I kind of think that the hub model that TDT has developed, it exists in a, there are a variety of flexible models outside, but I'm kind of convinced that that's where the economies come from because of time and money. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there are so many strong principles that just run through, doesn't it? So mm. keeping that student focus and looking outwards and, and coming together as different institutions to uh, rather than be competitive with each other or create competition, mm. collaborating for that no, sense of collegiality. So yeah. it's, it feels like there's a lot of potential and promise in the sector. And we at TDT are really keen to do as much as we can to expand our reach and work with as many sixth form colleges, FE colleges, where we can. So if you're listening and you're keen to find out more or have a chat with us, then please do give us an email. I think our details are always included in the footnotes for Naylor's Natter. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to pass back to Phil in the studio. Naylor's Natter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section, learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello Jules and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. So we're going to start with the uh, gentle introductory question uh, as we normally do. So if you can just tell us a little bit about your career to this point and what you're working on at the moment. So I, um, my career started leaving school um, at 16 with no qualifications whatsoever. Uh, so I like, I like to put that as part of my career, really, because I think it shaped what I, uh, the teacher I am today. And then I, I was in education then for a long time um, until I decided I wanted to become a teacher. Um, and at 22, I did um, A-levels and my maths O-level um, at night school while I was working and then went to university uh, to do a, a Bachelor of Arts. And then after that, I did a PGCE. And so that right, started off my career in that way. And then I worked as a secondary school English teacher and drama teacher up to sixth form. I became a deputy head of sixth form, and so my career was all going very swimmingly um, within a few years of teaching. And then after that, um, I took a career break with my, my partner had got a job in the Falkland Islands. So we went over to the Falkland Islands, and, um, and there was only one English teaching job over there, and he got it. So I then um, worked in radio for a couple of years, uh, doing the uh, news in the Falkland Islands on the their radio station. And then when I came back, I did lots of different things. So I, was, I was pregnant with my first child, uh, which is never, well, then, I, I think it's changed a bit now, but it wasn't a good, great place to um, then find a job. So I managed to get a job in the local authority, uh, which was working from home, so it worked very well with my children. And I worked with parents um, who had children with special needs, and it was an advocacy role. Um, that's where I then got into special needs and inclusion. And since then, I've, I've done other teaching roles. So I've worked in, um, co I've worked in FE colleges, um, and I've done some uh, dyslexia support and assessing, so I became a dyslexia assessor. And then I worked for the local authority in Dorset, um, as a specialist advisory teacher for um, a time and then I was head of a speech and language base which was in a comprehensive. Um, then I moved and I did some work in a charity in London and now I'm back in Dorset and I'm um, doing some consultancy work, some training as an SLE and I'm also teaching in a special school and head of English. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> a long, long career, zigzag, I like to call it, zigzag path. 
Well, yeah, rich and diverse career there so far, so that's fantastic. I was just writing down a few notes as you were talking there, and I just thought, yeah. wow, reading the news, reading the news, yeah. in that, that, oh, so, and here's me trying to be an amateur broadcaster, and we're in the hands of real professionals here. Well, it was a, it, yeah, it was a while ago now, but I, it, it was great fun. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, um, and um, because I was in the Falklands, you, you sort of did, you know, if you're working local in a local radio station in this country, you do very small, um, you know, local news, whereas, you know, a lot of our stuff was really international. So I um, interviewed some um, some really uh, sort of John Battle, who is um, a Baroness Scotland. So, you know, some um, MPs and uh, also some actors and things like that. So it was really good fun. It was a great two years out of, out of teaching. Wow. Wow. And that's a neat segue into, I was going to talk to you, because obviously you're uh, a much more successful podcaster than, than I am. And you've done a lot of, uh, you know, podcasts and obviously your experience in, the, in that area. But what, one of the things that you do talk about in that is about values based education. So you just to listen to a little bit about what do you mean by values based education? Yeah, um, that came. It actually came from um, some colleagues that I'd interviewed, really. But it um, and it stems from uh, Gert Biesta. Um, who talks about value-based education. And it's really th- how I like to... The, the reason I liked it so much and it, um, it really resonated with me was c- it's kind of flipping the narrative with regards to what we value in education at the moment. So um, looking at, at, at the child in the round, um, not just the academic um, achievement. And um, I think one of my... One of my articles I always have pinned to my Twitter, whether I wrote for the TES, um, but it, it sums up what I believe, really, which is that we should be judging schools on their inclusion policies and how they value their children as opposed to exam results. So um, we did three podcasts on values-based education, so I've probably summarised it in a really bad way. But for me, it's around valuing the whole child and seeing um, all children, not just um, as a grade no, absolutely. And and if um, people want to listen to those, I'm sure that most people have already listened to them, but I did um, a review of my, I think it was top five podcasts for Ross at uh, Teacher Toolkit. And, you know, I put those podcasts high up in the in, in the top five there because they are really yeah. essential listens. So if you haven't got, yeah. I'll put links to those in, in, in the show notes and for this one. I would recommend them because um, Professor Graham, um, she's um, an Australian and does loads of research and work on um, sort of behaviour, inclusion and special needs. And then Jarlath Oprey, um many people will know, also does a lot on behaviour. And, and he was the one really that got me interested in this values-based education idea. Um, and it just seemed to, you know, when you hear an idea and you think, that's exactly what I believe, even though I'd never read anything about, you know, from this person. So, yeah, so I would absolutely recommend those podcasts just because those two are great on it. Definitely, definitely. And uh, as well as the podcasting, you've also got lots and lots of uh, excellent blogs on your website. And in one of those that I read quite recently, um, you were talking about literacy. And there's obviously a big focus on literacy. I say obviously. I'm trying to think about um, sort of the context in which I'm working at the moment. So Blackpool has got a large sort of town-wide focus on literacy and his literacy project running across the local authority with Alex Quigley and, and Stephen Tierney kind of heading that up. But you talk about literacy as being, literacy, literacy is freedom. So what, what do you mean by that? So I've, I've taken that, it's not my phrase, although I'd love, loved it to have been, but I've picked it up since and it's UNESCO actually and it's the, um, the sort of looking at internationally the idea of literacy um, and they have a lovely phrase which starts about being literacy as freedom but what they say is those that don't have 
access to literacy or, you know, those that don't have access to uh, the written and communicate communicative words um, are the ones that understand um, how literacy um, can put up barriers, basically. So, so it's the ones that don't have literacy that really understand um, the impact of not having it um, and their lack of freedom, if you like. And that, that runs down from a, a child with dyslexia in a mainstream school that completely understands everything um, the teacher's saying but has no access uh, to um, the written word or to be able to write so they're not free and you know we need to liberate them if you like with assistive technology um, or the child that can't communicate through um, a lack of um, vocabulary or expressive the ability to express themselves down to non-verbal children you know who, who also need technology so you know, for me, literacy is very broad and um, it includes, I would include social media in that now, um, newspapers, magazines, books, um, you know, everything is around literacy and communication. And, and without, if you don't have those skills, then then you are not free. No, no, indeed. And, and that's just making me think there because I went down a very sort of narrow um, secondary literacy focus but obviously it's much much wider than that in terms of all the different contexts you talked about there yeah and, and that, yeah. that's kind of segue into the next question about um you know how, how do we go about making our classrooms more inclusive yeah it's a real I mean I think about this all the time I'm completely obsessed with it really and uh, and um it is really hard particularly in a mainstream school where you've got 30 children and and it has to be um a mixture really but the first thing for me the, the most magical thing is um, to be open to the idea of using other ways. So, for instance, if you've got a 15-year-old child that can't read or write, it's all very well saying, oh, that's terrible, you know, um, they were never taught in school, um, you know, they haven't had any phonics, they haven't had this, but and that's fine, we can put in a phonics programme for them, but, you know, that phonics programme will probably be maybe once, twice, three times a week, so what are you doing for that child to access literacy um, in geography, in history, in science, and even in English literature? So, you know, it, it is very broad. And I, and I think so just thinking in that in those terms is really useful. And technology for me is not used enough um, to enable some children to do that. And and that's, you know, in a, having a, 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 that approach, I think, is really um, important. The other thing I would say is pupil voice. Um, and every time you ask a child, particularly with dyslexia, who's very articulate, it does change if, if they have um, difficulty with oral language, um, but they will tell you absolutely what will help them. And once they've told you, then it, then it is really up to us uh, to then enable them. So if they've said they need something, um, then we should be able to try and put that in place for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And moving into um, sort of behaviour now, this is probably... You know, I mean, <laughs> Twitter's not a good barometer sometimes of, you know, what the opinion's like in the profession more widely. I mean, I do quite a lot of um, training of teachers via sort of ITTs, NQTs, and a lot of the stuff that we do, sort of teacher development trust, research school stuff, you know, across areas. And you sometimes mention Twitter, and, and there's, there's a few people that put down to, but it, Twitter is by no means representative of every single teacher across the country. No. 
So the next question I'm going to ask will will possibly divide opinions, and, 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 and my role on this podcast is not to offer opinions any which way. It's just to listen to you know the, the fantastic guests that I've had on. So with that big setup, the big question I'm going to ask now is, uh, is all behaviour communication, and what do you say to people, and, and obviously there are people, that disagree with this? Okay, so <laughs> first I need to unpick the word behaviour, and I think that's one of the problems. So as an SEN teacher, we often talk about behaviours. Um, so a behaviour can be um, not understanding something you say. Um, a behaviour can be not being able to hear a phoneme in a word. So, you know, they are what we might call behaviour traits. So... Um, the word behaviour is, is even, I mean, if we we're doing our vocabulary, our Alex Quigley or Isabel Beck vocabulary um, work on the word behaviour, then there's an awful lot to do. But I'm, I know what you mean. So um, what you're talking about is other behaviours that aren't linked to learning um, or that aren't linked to cognitive learning. And so I would say, yes, that all behaviour is communication. And I know that's where it becomes controversial. But it, it really is. <laughs> so the more severe the behaviour, the more easy it is to realise it is communication. OK, so and I know sometimes with Tom Bennett or whatever, with the, you know, the, behave, the crackdown on behaviour, what I would say there, they're, they're kind of collective, collective ways of keeping a school running. So, yes, of course, you need boundaries and of course you need um, some ways so of expectations that children know how to behave, and we're teaching them to behave. So that that sort of level is great. And, um, and you know, if you want to have centralised attentions or whatever, you know, his advice is, that's fine. What I would say, though, is when you start to unpick those children that are always having behaviour, um, then suddenly those, those tactics don't work. Uh, for a lot of the children and that's why they're the ones that are in the isolation booth all the time or the ones that have had persistent disruptive behavior which eventually leads to fixed term and then permanent exclusions and they those behaviors are communication I, I, you know and and it will change for each child but the first thing as a as a teacher is to be curious about that behavior is to see it is oh you know um why are they doing that you know why that that why not you know they're doing that and they mustn't do it well yeah that's fine isn't it <laughs> but is that going to work you know why are they behaving like that that doesn't mean to say you accept it and there won't be any consequences or even as a, a new teacher particularly but any teacher that you have to cope with that yourself but the first question should be why and that will link to communication, behaviours communication. And then to the people that, I mean, it was really interesting because you said at the beginning that that wasn't the part that I was talking about, but actually even that explanation helps to open things up and break down barriers between people yeah. who've got very fixed opinions about it should be done this way because. Because yeah. I, I hadn't considered that you were talking about any kind of behaviour. So even in the way that they, they ask questions or the way that people answer questions, that that you know, like you said, it, that could be classed yeah. as behaviour just as much as we all seem to think it's it's well, it's the people that won't do what you've asked them to do. That's not the yeah. only way to define behaviour. But even that that understanding of um, not doing what you've asked them to do. Now, bearing in mind that sixty percent of the prison population um, 
have got language difficulties. Okay, and language difficulties is expressing yourself, so speaking, but it's also understanding what people say, which we call receptive language. So immediately, alarm bells for me, when I talk to teachers and they say, oh, he doesn't do anything I ask him to do, the first thing I go to is, is it language? Is it because he or she hasn't understood what I've said? And, you know, those or it might be that the language that they understand it literally. So, you know, they've been told to sit down and they sit down by on the carpet by the door uh, because you haven't said, can you sit in this chair, please? And then immediately teachers think, oh, they're just being funny or they're, they're trying to be clever. Often there are children, you know, that have um, pragmatic language difficulties, i.e. that take things literally, that will just do exactly as you say. And, it, and you have to be really clear and explicit with your language <laughs> so you know even that he or she doesn't do what I ask them to do I can bet your bottom dollar there'll be a language difficulty there mm-hmm. and I mean this is probably a quite a flippant point to follow it up with but um what I liked on, on uh, your website as well is that you have this uh, excellent reasons you disagree bingo card I mean that that's, I thought that was quite useful for sort of low level twitter spats you know you could you could yeah. use something like that can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, have, I I quite like the bingo cards. They're often not mine. So I've got three that I use an awful lot. One of them is um, every time I talk about behavioural exclusions and then there's the typical responses that I always get. And, and I, you know, to be fair, um, I am sure the other way, if, if um, somebody that I argue with regularly on Twitter would say that I give the same. So on their bingo card, behaviourist communication would be on it. You know? mm-hmm. But on my behaviour bingo card, it's always things like, what about the other 29? Um, you know, we can't have children disrupting our lessons. Um, you know, some children can't be educated in mainstream schools. You know, it's always the same ones that, that, that come up again and again. So that's where I made my bingo card. Um, and then, but then some of the bingo cards then become very personal, like, you know, well, you're just a really rubbish teacher or, or something like that. You know, so, so um, or you haven't been teaching for 10 years or, you know, you've never worked in a really disadvantaged area. You know, there's always, always the same sort of arguments so, that come up. So that's my bingo for that. I do have two other ones. One is, um, it's a really good one on asking female um, or women to speak at conferences. Um, you know, when you when you uh, point out an all male panel or something like that, and the bingo card is is very useful there as well because you get the same responses like, "Are oh, we asked and they couldn't come?" or "You know, women are shy and they don't come forwards," and or "There aren't that many women in this field," or "You know, they're not interesting or they're not funny," or you know something like that. So that's my other bingo card. <laughs> well, I did have an, another one, didn't I? What was my third one? Can't remember now. I think that was for um, another sort of uh, women one on um, all sorts of things. So yeah, so they're my my bingo cards, but they quite I think they do annoy people though. So um, I try not to put them up too much. <laughs> well, I, I've managed to escape unscathed because I'm obviously quite uh, small fry on on the big world of Twitter, so people don't seem to uh, bother engaging either way with anything. And I, plus, I don't really offer too many opinions, so that, that kind of helps me. But um, I have noticed a couple of people fishing for things recently that. I thought, oh, this would be a really good thing to use if you're a bingo card there. Like, in my bingo, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the one I nearly got lured, lured into last week um, yeah. was, was around those kind of things that you were talking about there. So it was the, um, you know, well, does that mean that nobody who's been in the classroom can po- possibly offer an opinion? What about Dylan William? You know, he's been out of the yeah. classroom for excellent reviews. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not. It's Friday night. I'm watching yeah. my daughter's gymnast. I'm not going to get lured into a big discussion about, you know. Yeah. The, uh, no chance. I, so I generally have, I've got, 
yeah, I think I've got better at it over the years because I used to I used to jump into every argument and think I had to solve solve the world and and I'm a, I'm a bit more now. I tend to um, try and keep it as humorous as possible because it's very easy um, for it to get nasty. So I I, I recognise that quite quickly now and and use humour as much as I can. Um, or the other one I ha I do have a strict rule with a couple of people on Twitter that I will only give ten responses. And then when I and I count them, and when I get to the tenth, I stop because <laughs> they're just circular. <laughs> so there's some tips for Twitter for people. If oh, they want. Well, this is this is great. <laughs> this is this is gold stuff. Right, yeah. mo moving back onto the uh, the questions. So yeah. um, I, I want to look at a little bit about parents. Now, you know, again, to to link to the research school stuff, we do talk a lot about engaging with parents, and there was a guidance report around you know, engaging more with parents. And, and primary schools seem to be, you know, particularly good at engaging with parents, probably because of the, you know, the, the, the class teacher, the, the traditional kind of meet and greet at the gate, see them at the end of the day, that sort of thing. But do you think that parents, particularly in secondaries, should be seen as part of a solution to whatever issue the child is having and not considered to be the problem? Absolutely. And they should be um, early intervention um, in secondary schools, particularly, is has to include the parent or the family immediately. Um, and this is where often some of the problems lie. So, you know, by the time the home find out about what's happening, they, you know, they, they sort of they might hear things like, oh, well, you know, this has been going on for a long time. They say, well, why haven't you told me? <laughs> you know? And and. What interests me, though, about that is that it, it should be around the solutions and being involved and early intervention or prevention even, you know, um, just, just involving parents as much as possible. But um, texting behaviour points on a parent's phone, for me, is not parental engagement. Um, um, sending lots of data drops um, about your child's um, progress is not parental engagement. Um, that's information. And sometimes, actually, I think it's too much information. So you have too much sort of data drop information and not enough human interaction, um, particularly with those children that we are starting, you know, that, that are starting to um, show difficulties with behaviour or academic progress. I just wonder sometimes when, I mean, this is another ridiculously big question, but yeah. when did we become so busy that we haven't got the time to do things like that? I mean, just as a personal anecdote, and it might not be reflected in any listeners who are, listening, who are kind of thinking about this, but when I was head of year seven about 10, 15 years ago, I used to have a Monday night parent drop-in in the library, and I was full between sort of three o'clock and about half past five, but the number of, you know, I also said problems, but the number of things that were resolved before they became problems, the number mm. of relationships that I developed with parents so that I could have a quick word with them about something to, to stare off any serious thing. But we think now, well, we, we still seem to have time with the sheer number of meetings and the sheer amount of other things that are going on. And this is kind of integral to making sure that the school works properly. I completely agree with you and I would much rather see that face-to-face -face work that teachers have got to do rather than filling in, um, you know, meaningless forms and um, assessments that nobody's ever going to use but that might keep somebody happy. Um, you know, I think that has become the problem. Um, and, and, you know, I think as well for parental engagement, I think it's become a problem. Um, and I hate to say this because, you know, I've used it and I've done it myself, but things like Sims... 
Um, it's really easy just to chuck a behaviour point on Sims and not even have human interaction with the student, let alone the parent. And so you chuck the behaviour point on Sims, then um, that behaviour point goes to the parents, it goes to some other people, um, you know, further up the chain in the school. Um, and But actually, you, then you speak to the child and they go, did I? You know, oh, you got a behaviour point, did I? And actually, it's almost been done without any dialogue whatsoever. And I do think I'm a I'm a huge tech fan, but I think we are sometimes using tech too readily when face to face um, conversations with students and with families should should be the first port of call. So I completely agree with you. And I think you save time a lot of time, don't you, um, in in putting that initial um, effort in on those evenings. Yeah, and just think of that conversation on the yard with that that stereotypical year nine pupil who, you know, you might be having a few difficulties with, but you've had a conversation with mum or dad on a Monday night about something, you know, and then you've got that relationship where you can pick up the phone and speak to them. They know that you've got that. They know that you're invested in them and their family, and they're much more likely to want to do what you ask them to do, which yeah. saves, like I said, saves you time in the end, but also makes for a much more productive working relationship and actually you know it's quite good for your own well-being as well yeah absolutely and also you know i would say that ask parents and families what they would do i mean there's no shame in saying i have tried everything with jonathan um or or janice um and i you know i'm at a loss to know what to do you know i've i've rung you i've done this i've done that you know what do you do at home you know what what do they tell you at home and actually there's so you know parents particularly if they've got children with special needs are really desperate to communicate their ideas and thoughts about how their child would be better and you know and often they're stricter sometimes with their children than than um than you will be you know but they've you get this Im- impression because of the child um and any kind of you know unidentified needs that um oh that must be because at home um you know they don't get boundaries you know they don't give them boundaries at home and then but they forget to look at their other two or three children that are all perfect in school and you know where they're being praised you know so so i think yeah seeing that again that whole picture um is is really important I mean, and as well, I mean, this is slightly different, but a parent who, you know, can be, for whatever reason, quite angry on the phone, tends to be less, much less angry if you ask them to come into school and you actually spend the time to sit down with them and have a conversation. And it, yeah. it, it's very rare that the anger is quite as pronounced when they Absolutely. walk through the door and sit down and come. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions to that, but. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm not saying all parents and families are perfect, and you know, but um, I think it's our role to to you know unpick that and and to see. But also, you know, we none of us are perfect, you know, uh, and parents are the same. And actually, if you're um, or you know, if you've got a looked-after child, even if you are leading a stressful life and that child is quite stressful, not only at school but at home, um, then you know you're triggered. I think much more easily to uh you know for instance your phone keeps pinging because there's you know all the behavior points um and then or you get a phone call every other day and you and you start you know I've, I've, this is having worked with parents you know doing that role as parent partnership officer you know they can feel sick when the phone rings at um 10 in the morning because it means they're not going to be able to go to work because they're going to have to go and pick their child up or something you know so so all you know so all those attitudes that you might get you might get what you perceive to be a really rude parent but have they been trying to fight this battle for six years (laughs) and so you're just the straw that broke the camel's back so you've said one 
can you know maybe something really small but it's just been a trigger it's a it's a similar to behavior with children isn't it we all have our triggers and we've all got different resilience levels depending on how stressful our lives are at the time so i think kind of you know checking in with parents and just sort of saying are you you know are is every, are you okay god it must be really hard um you know if you've got a child that doesn't sleep at night for instance often children with autism you know don't go to bed till three in the morning um and then they're a real effort to get up in the morning you know that i think having empathy um towards those sorts of situations um is really important definitely definitely Right, so we've we've gone on behaviour and been, uh, you know, not at all controversial, but this this is definitely going to be a controversial question now. So we'll get into the real, you know, tricky Twitter spat kind of areas now. So we're going to go into pedagogy, and right. and you've written a, a blog about. You say that card sorts get a bad press, yes. and this. So this let, let's get to this one. So I'll set I'll set up set my stall out on this one. Go so on, um, on. I, I was married to a fellow teacher. And I mean, I wasn't ever a fan of card sorts particularly, other than the ones that uh, the local authority consultant used to ask us to do in science. But she used to spend an inordinate amount of time in the evenings cutting out, laminating. We had laminators, we had guillotines, we had brown paper envelopes. We had, you know, that was my kind of thing. It's the only chance I ever got to actually watch any TV was, can you put this in here, this in here? And I thought, all of that effort for about five minutes or even less than that. So I am not a card sorts fan. So tell us a little bit about why you think they get a bad press. Okay, so I get you. Oh, right, I get you there. And um, and I understand that. So with everything, um, so for instance, at the moment, I am seeing lots of people spend an inordinate amount of time um, making up quizzes for retrieval practice, okay? And... Um, you know, because they're trying, trying to do it on, a, on the tech base, um, which is fine. You know, you might say they don't take very long, but sometimes they do. A bit like I might say to you, card sorts don't take long. Um, everything that, you know, becomes a fad or a fashion will then suddenly overtake your pedagogy, if you like. And then you're having to do it all the time. So my big thing, I think, is to, to have a big toolkit. And in that toolkit, you can pull out various things um, to use and some things will take a long time and others won't so I think where I got so I, I get you on the car sorts because you know I'm a really lazy teacher I just want to say that right so this is why this is why I get really um, probably uh, animated about things like differentiation because you know everyone says oh car sorts take ages differentiation takes ages so you know I'm a lazy teacher I will do as little as possible at all times but what I've seen a shift in since I started teaching in 1996 is that I'm having to spend a lot longer on things like um, classroom monitor um, having to press loads of buttons to turn things into a different color that take hours okay and actually is that helping my children learn in the classroom right no it isn't okay it is it is making me maybe more aware and I might have to assess and you know so I, I get that I've got to know where my children are and how to progress now a card sort right might take you some time but it has a huge impact on many children when they're trying to sift through their thoughts and learn okay so if you're saying to me, well, you know, you sit by the, you sit on your sofa and you watch telly while you're cutting your card sorts. Well, you can't do that on classroom monitor. You can't even watch the telly. So, you know, when we're looking at the different timings of, of what things take and what we're doing, it's always for me is, you know, will it help my child access the learning in the classroom? 
Having said that, I'm not saying do card swaps for everything, but they are really useful. So particularly for children with special needs, um, even just one small thing like processing time. So children that process really slowly and take and, you know, struggle with manipulating information in their working memory, um, giving them a card sort, a sequence, um, allows them processing time, allows their working memory to... to um, be actually on paper, on prompts, you know, so so you can physically move around your prompts to sequence. And also a lot of children with special needs do struggle with sequencing. So, and again, that's where card sorts came from because it was the idea of sequencing. And uh, children with special needs, lots of children, particularly with language difficulties, struggle with sequencing. There you go, have I defended it? No, you defended it brilliantly. And th- th- when I was writing some notes before I was gonna, knew I was going to speak to you, obviously I set it up with the dramatic, I don't like it for that reason. But <laughs> he- here's the irony of it, Jules. So when we lead training, training courses on whatever I'm doing, so I'm not necessarily talking about you know all the organisations that I work for, but every single course that we facilitate involves some sort of card sort. So, yeah. so it's okay for adults to pay or whatever it is to come on training courses um, and obviously the, the value, the, the, the benefits of uh, a card sort for their own development, but we can't possibly use them now in schools because they're out of fashion and it's all about retrieval practice and we can't possibly yeah. use a card sort to do that. Which is completely crazy. Um, you know, particularly if we're spending loads of time doing other things that aren't helping children learn in the classroom. I mean, I see people on these training courses are exactly what you said then. This is a way of communicating with the fellow delegates. It's a way yep. of, you know, explaining your own thinking. It's a way, yep. of, you know, if you talk about elaboration on a particular point, well, you have to be able to do yep. that to be able to put these into order. So, yeah, I can totally yep. see that. And also, it's, you made great points. Mm. Yeah, you made, Sorry, great points about, no, you made great points about the sort of fashion of it and, and what a lot of what you are saying, if I'm kind of paraphrasing, is that you don't use it every single time because no. someone's told you to on Twitter, for example. And I yeah. spoke to Mark McCourt about this, about retrieval practice, and it seems to be now every single lesson must start with a retrieval quiz of what you did last lesson. Well, actually, mm. you know, the, the argument that, it, well, it, it, it doesn't have to be at the start of every lesson. It's at the end of a particular you know sequence of learning or a particular learning episode rather than... Mm. Every single lesson has to be this, and but you know. If not, thing, sorry, go on. Yeah. I do. No, it's all right. I do have to put this in that a card saw is retrieval practice. Yeah. So you know, here's, that's the thing, isn't it? So it's kind of you know, retrieval practice isn't just a quiz. It mm. can be a quiz. It can be you chatting and and you know asking everybody a question um, before you start. You know what it is? It's sort of checking in. You know, tuning your brain back into that lesson, what you did last lesson, and what you're going to learn next. Mm. So, in a card sort, it is you know a really good way of doing that. And I mean, some some of the same kind of things could be said about you know some kind of group work and others that that training courses for adults even evidence and research-based training courses for adults do involve card sorts and they do involve group work and they do involve some kind of brainstorming, group thinking, all this kind of thing. Yeah. So if yeah. it's good enough at that level, then there must yeah. be a place for it somewhere within your, your classroom as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, and that's where the thing... I saw one of the, one of the really um, easy uh, exercise I once saw in a history lesson um, they were doing um, oh Malcolm X and you know or uh, black American history and they just had a good pile and a bad pile with all the key words now it was amazing because of course 
is Malcolm X good or bad? You know, you're not going to know that unless you've got your history. You know, was, is, you know, um, thinking of all the different, you know, was um, Rosa Parks good or bad? It was a really good way of doing it. And obviously, when I spoke to another historian, they said, oh, I don't really like good or bad. But it was a good way to start a good way to start a lesson and to refresh the memory of what you've been doing in you know in in that module so i think it's a great great thing to do why on earth would we not want to do card sorts well i think you've convinced us so i mean to, you know <laughs> back back into the teacher's toolkits and uh, goes yeah. goes the uh, the card sorts definitely it's about the archives <laughs> so segueing into well-being um card sorts as we've already established weren't good for my well-being at the time yeah. But uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your blog, uh, The Art of Imperfection? And is it called The Crapometer? Is that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so actually, this is a talk I do. I did do a blog, but I've, I've, I've done it and I've been asked to do it a number of times now. And um, often it's, it's to do with women ed, but um, the um, organisation I do some work with. Um, but it's been useful for everybody, male and female. And it's the idea um, that to be imperfect is a really good thing. So to sort of embrace your imperfection, hence the art of imperfection. Um, and the crapometer is part of that. So um, so I have this crapometer that, that is now on the wall of a teaching, the, the Dorset Teaching School Alliance. Um, and I have to keep borrowing it. I have to keep stealing it out of Tim's office who, who runs the, the teaching school. And I go, can I borrow my crapometer back? But um, it's on his wall and it's got loads of post-its over it. And it's basically... Um, I'm, getting people to tell stories about what they feel really crap about um either in work or at home so and and they're always the same ones you know i haven't done enough marking or um you know my t- my teaching's not good enough or i haven't um assessed my children or you know or um, or it might be at home i don't spend enough time with my partner i don't spend enough time with my kids um you know all all the things that we feel really bad about and and then we have a little competition about who's who's the crappiest <laughs> and um, so some of the stories are great. There was, there's this one, um, you know, the tooth fairy comes up a lot, you know, that you forget to put the money. Sorry, I'm sorry I shouldn't break into laughter halfway through that. That that would be my confession of the week. Oh, yeah. we, we had a terrible incident with that on the weekend, but sorry, carry on. Oh, yeah. No, 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 it's a good, and it is, it's, it's one that, that people really like. And one of my favourites was a teacher. She was saying how um, they had this goldfish that had, that was, on death's door and she'd sort of googled that the best thing to do would be to flush it down the toilet so she hadn't told her son and she'd flush the um fish down the toilet um and then about i don't know 15 minutes later her son was um saying he was going to be sick so he rushed as she told him to do to he rushed to the toilet and she followed him to be sick in the toilet and then she got there just a bit before him and realized that the goldfish hadn't been flushed down the toilet so then she shoved him out of the way so he didn't see his dead goldfish and then he threw up all over the floor and so she said you know and then he was really upset about throwing up all over the floor so she said it was like this double whammy of crapness really that there was still a gold a dead goldfish in the in the toilet and he was really upset because he'd thrown up on the floor so that was quite a good good one um that that beat the other stories that day i'm still really you just made me relive the horror of saturday night in the nail household when um, oh go on well it was a very late night uh, loss of tooth in fairness to 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 me so um she lost it my daughter who's six she lost it very much at the last minute on saturday night so we went through all the routines of putting it under the pillow however I decided to have, a, you know, an early-ish night and a snooze. Well, that snooze turned into about six o'clock in the morning to be woken up by the, 
the tooth fairy hasn't been yeah. scream from the bedroom. But I got so lucky, Jules. I, don't, I think I might have to cut this from the podcast. But I got so lucky that um, when she woke up, she moved a pillow and the tooth dropped out. It's a very tiny front tooth. So uh, she couldn't find it. And I said, oh, are you sure that it was still there? Are you sure that it was still there? In which time I managed to sneak some money under an alternative pillow. So, yes, on, on my yeah. crapometer was 100% on uh, Sunday the morning. Tooth fairy. And she yeah, keeps mentioning it during the week as well. So it's, it's, she's not forgotten. That's definitely a popular one. And um, But what's interesting about that, you see, is, is the tips. So, so yours is, that's the tip I often give, because I've done it loads, um, when I go, surely you just haven't looked properly, and I run outside and I get a you know, bit of money in my hand, and I run up the stairs, so you're kind of doing this mock, very dramatic looking for the money, and then you go, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I got so lucky because um, my son's a little bit older, so he's nearly 11, so he's... He's beyond the stage of thinking that's real, but he's supporting me with this. So yeah. he was frantically looking around trying to find it, stroke, distract his sister yeah, while really. we managed to sort this out. So fortunately, yeah. he was playing along, so I got away with it. But that's, that's such a good idea. Yeah. I, feel, I feel better already, and I've yeah, already discussed exactly. the crapometer. Um, one head teacher told me that she, she felt that there should be a crapometer above every desk in the school. <laughs> So, um, so yeah. Anyway, so the idea. So we, we dump all our crap on there, and then and then I just talk about how um, we talk about Brenny. Brenny Brown does this a lot about the imp- imperfection. But actually, we shouldn't be striving for perfection because that's just ridiculous, um, and we can't be perfect. And and actually, there's um, there's a lovely phrase that says, if your fidelity to perfection, if if your fidelity to protect, uh, perfection is uh, too much or something, sorry, I've completely forgotten the phrase, but it says then um, then you will get nothing done. And uh, that is a way of, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to fail because we want to be perfect and so, therefore we don't take any risks. And actually teaching, I think, has become a bit like that. We're expected to be perfect. I mean, how? when was the last time somebody came and observed you in a lesson and went, that was bloody brilliant, and then just walked out the door? They don't, do they? So no. it's like, you know, that was really good, but, you know, you could have done this a bit better or you could have done that. So, you know, we're stri- the, the, the education system is making us strive for perfection. Ofsted, you know, wouldn't it be great if Ofsted came and said... It's really hard at the moment, isn't it? There's no money. You're from a, you know, you've got a really um, difficult school. You know, I think you're doing really well, and you kind of go, okay. <laughs> you know, what's so? What are we going to improve? Nothing. I think you're brilliant. <laughs> it's like, we just don't do that, do we? So, um, and obviously we have to be accountable, and we can always be better. But there's a fine line, um, and the message we're telling our children as well, isn't there? There's a fine line between, you know, just being good enough and perfect and actually done is better than perfect which is another phrase from Cheryl Sandberg so um so we kind of look at all that really in a in a, in a funny way with a crapometer and I use a lot of Celeste Barber I don't know if you've seen her she does these brilliant um little clips where she copies um a celebrity model and you know they, they look all slick and perfect and then she sort of does it in a really bad way so there's one of her um drinking coke um, the model drinks Coke really beautifully and smiles at the end and, and she and her bottle of Coke fizzes up everywhere and, and goes all over her face and, and then she smiles at the end. And I just talk about, you know, what is real, you know, what is real and what, what is just the image of perfection. 
No, brilliant. And I'm definitely going to get a crepometer <laughs> for the uh, Blackpool Research School office. So. Oh, that'd be great. I'll yeah. send you. Oh, you've got the photograph of mine. I've got you? the photograph. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to get make a, a life size model. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, and it's a really crap crapometer as well. So it's not, for, <laughs> you know. So that was the whole idea of it that it wasn't supposed. You know, it shouldn't be that great. It should just do the job. It was good enough. <laughs> definitely definitely so you mentioned uh, in there that uh, you're doing a lot of work with women ed and we've had i've had been lucky to speak to quite a few people who've been involved in that uh, and one thing that i liked is that you, you, you talked a bit a little bit about you know conferences and making sure that you know um panels and things are representative of the profession more widely but one thing that you talked about was your top six books by female educators so i know i'm putting you on the spot here jules now but can you kind of signpost listeners to what you think are your top six books by female educators yeah so um now i think mary meyer is i'm a huge fan of mary meyer um i think all her books have been brilliant from um the uh, right across she's got her new one hasn't she gallifrey to the curriculum uh, which I've yet... plug. She's coming on in a couple of weeks, so I just, oh, thought, I just thought I'd get that in there. Sorry. Well, she's she's amazing. She's one of my heroes. Um, um, I just love the way, and and I love. She has got this brilliant um, way of managing to be loved by everyone. So you know, I'm real marmite. So you either you know a lot of people really don't like me on Twitter, <laughs> and, um, and you know, and I manage to upset people. But Mary manages to sort of float uh, surf that line between um, both camps if you like and 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 just looks at really um you know just looks at teaching and I think everyone agrees with her or whatever side you're on because she just talks a lot of common sense about about teaching and education so yeah so all of her books I would I would say um Jill Berry uh, Jill Berry's books are amazing and and they're really good on um leadership and what I like about Jill is she, she's very humble um so she um she talks about her failures as much as her successes and um and it's really real and accessible and i think if anybody has you know had a few failed interviews and is feeling really disheartened about going into leadership then um she's she's a really great book to read because um uh, you know she's she's all about that well she is okay. i mean she came on a few weeks ago and i'm all about correlation and causation so you can never claim these these things are directly linked but i did a podcast with jill about making the leap if it was from deputy to head yeah. um and i talked about you know i've been assistant head teacher for 10 years and you know all this anyway next thing you know i went for an interview and i got the job as deputy head about four or five weeks later uh, after following a conversation with jill berry so that. I, mean, yeah, I think it's just the magic must have rubbed off there definitely she absolutely has the magic, doesn't she? So um, she's good. Now, I do need to mention um, 10% Braver, obviously, mm-hmm. which is the Women Ed book, um, which is a collection of um, female um, writers. Um, but it does have Chris Hildrew in, in it as the he for she chapter. So, um, so I would like to mention um, that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and then, oh, God, sorry, I'm just looking in my phone because I wrote down my list and I can't find it. <laughs> and I've got a really bad memory, so that's my excuse. Um, so let me just find my my um, my list. Well, while you you're know, finding I, it, I can tell you that Vivian's coming on as well. So she's oh, going to come in and, and, and talk in a, in a few weeks. I'm just trying to fix up a date for that as well. So yeah. Oh, Sue Cowley. Okay, I have to mention Sue Cowley. Right, so Sue Cowley has... has um, one has been writing for years 
Um, two has been on Twitter for probably longer than anybody else. And three has been discussing behavior um, longer than anybody else. And I'm um, sorry, this is a little bit political, but it really irritates me that she has never been asked to contribute to any policy on behaviour. Mm. So she started with let the buggers be behaved. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I've still, I've still got yeah, a copy of that. Yeah, and I've met, you know, in, during my career in teaching, I remember once I was at the Festival of Wellington and I was with, um, uh, you know, she was a very experienced teacher. She'd been teaching for 10 years, but she was younger than me because, you know, I'm, I'm old. And, um, and I we happened to see Sue walking across and we stopped and, you know, had a hug and I was like, hi, and we introduced each other. And um, Emma, this teacher I was with, she, she was just like starstruck. And she went, oh, she goes, I can't believe you know Sue Cowley. She goes, she was my hero. She said, I had the worst NQT year. Um, she's a secondary school teacher as well. Um, I had the worst NQT year. And then I read Buggers, you know, Get the Buggers to Behave. And she said it completely transformed my teaching. And she goes, and then after that, she goes, she is the reason I stayed in teaching. And, you know, I hear that a lot from people. So I think she's a kind of neglected, um, um, very experienced educator. Well, I mean, in terms of the Blackpool context, again, she's very much in the CPD libraries of the schools that I've been in. In fact, yeah. uh, her book is, is one of the, I think it's the top five books on, on the yeah. CPD display in, in the school I'll be going to um, from from. Uh, well, I'm, I'm making all sorts of revelations on her now. I'll have to put this out yeah, after Christmas. Brilliant. But, but yeah. from Christmas, um, yeah, so Sue's book is very much part of their sort of behaviour um, policy and, and wider reading as well. Yeah, and, and you know, and why she hasn't, um, you know, like I say, been chosen um, to, to be on any of, of these policy groups. I, I you know, I think, I think it's wrong, to be honest. But, you know, there you go. <laughs> Just wanted to get that in there. So, yeah. and do they all have to be education books? No, no, not at all. Okay, so um, I have also read recently uh, Jess Phillips' um, Every Woman, which I think is hilarious and brilliant. And it was bought for me by somebody that said that um, that I reminded um, them of her. <laughs> so, so I think that's a great book about politics. Um, um, and Michelle Obama's Becoming, I think, is another book that I've been reading uh, lately. And um, also, I'm going to lump these in together. Um, and then also, um, Women in History, you know, the um, by Mary Beard. Yeah. So they've been my books that I've been reading um, recently, actually. I, I, I have to say, I haven't been reading some education books lately. I've been reading those, um, as well as Margaret Atwood's The Testament. So um, so I've been reading quite a lot of female authors, but not necessarily in education, <laughs> in the education world. No, it's nice to read outside of it sometimes, isn't yeah. it? A little bit, yeah. Um, and then, do you know, I've changed... The reason I'm being a bit um, awful about this, aren't I? Because I've also saw a brilliant um, woman um, who was head of Debenham High School, Julia... And she did a great session yesterday. I was um, I was uh, doing a keynote on leadership yesterday at Debenham High School, and she did, and I stayed for her talk, which was leading through reading, and she gave ten books, um, and, I, and they reminded me ten books that that had really um, impacted on her leadership as a head teacher, and um, and it reminded me, um, and this is a great book, um, is Making Good Progress by um, Daisy Christodoulou on assessment and I'd kind of forgotten about that book because I had read it and I did really like it no absolutely yeah and I've definitely seen yeah. that one and that's been mentioned yeah. a few times as well yeah and and she talks a lot of sense you know she really does she really does yeah 
Um, this is this is a, a shameless link and a, and a segue into something else. But um, yeah. obviously, ten percent braver you've talked about. Yes. But what I'm trying to do as part of the podcast, not necessarily just you know uh, female teachers, but teachers in general. Um, that you mentioned there that you're reading a lot of books, whether it's on education or, or more widely. And I've been trying to get people to send in sort of clips and reviews of things that they're reading because I know I've got a very cheesy theme song, if you've ever heard it, which is the point of the podcast was to be talking to teachers. So I really wanted to try and get people involved in either reviewing books or talking about how they've yeah. used a book in their practice or even just how they, they've engaged with a book and how it's had an impact on their life. I mean, the, the example you gave there of the teacher who used Sue Cowley's work, I mean, I'd love to hear about things like that yeah. but uh, yeah. I, keep, I keep trying I've, I've had about three or four people come in and say that they'll join in so far but a lot of people That's say yeah. well I don't like the sound of my own voice or oh, I wouldn't want people to think that uh, you know I thought I was somebody and I want people to think I thought I was an expert and it's not about that it's about that one little bit of sharing with somebody else might make a big difference to them Definitely, definitely. And I, and I do think, um, you know, and being that 10% braver on that, I think is a really nice, um, it, I, we, I've, you know, women have definitely been affected by 10% braver, I think, in that way, actually, you know, thinking, oh, who am I to do this? Or, you know, I can't possibly apply for that job. Or, you know, I can't write that because I'm not a good writer. And, you know, and just that, I think that idea of the phrase, which, again, came from Sue Cowley. I mean, she is a total hero. Um, in On our first unconference, um, she, she brought us that phrase. Um, and but it really resonated with people because it is just having that little, being that little bit braver, sort of challenging yourself a bit more, pushing yourself forward a bit more. Yeah, definitely. And if anybody does want to do that, then uh, I, I usually put the links out at the end via the show notes or just email me. I mean, it's very simple. Clip on a phone, send it in. And I mean, that idea that, you know, who am I to say this? Well, <laughs> listeners, who am I to say this? You know, I'm just a teacher in a classroom like everybody else. So, you know, it's, it's not it's not something that I'm not trying to say we're experts on this. We're just trying to share best practices and see if we can make a difference. It's really nice. And it's, it's really nice. I, I love that the, the little things are the things I think that make the biggest difference. I remember once I wrote, which I thought was a really small little post on mini whiteboards, um, you know, and how not to use them like Dilly, Dylan Williams um, on... Um, you know, as a AFL type thing, but to use them um, in the classroom for children with SENS, you know, that, um, and it was just a really small, a bit like my card sort blog, actually. And the lovely Mark Enza um, loved it. And he said it was, it's, he implemented it across the school with teachers. And so even just from a blog, it was, you know, I felt hugely uh, privileged that he'd, he'd done that. And um, that made me feel really good. So, you know, it's really nice hear just little tips from teachers as well um that they've read in a book and then they've implemented in the classroom and it's really worked so get get sending those in and i've even yeah. tied with the idea of guest hosts and things like that so if anybody wants to do that have yeah, a go yeah i should yeah well you should um tag us in and we'll we'll um retweet it on women ed as well brilliant brilliant right just the last bit so i'm just conscious yeah. of time and thanks so much for this jules tonight really appreciate it um, can we just finish off by, uh, can you just give listeners a bit of a signpost to your website, where they can find the blogs that we've been uh, talking about tonight and where you'll be speaking next? Yeah, okay. So I my my website is now just Jules Dorby. So it used to be called Mainstream Send, um, 
but I've I've sort of diversified and you know I'm working in a special school as well at the moment so um so I'm honing my skills there um but so it's just called jewelsdorby.com uh, there are blogs on there there's um lots of information about where I've been and what I've said and I've actually got a book review page that I must update actually <laughs> and um because I, I like to read books and just um talk about them um and where am I speaking next well I'm at, it's a bit early because tomorrow I'm at the academy show um actually doing something for women ed tech because we um we also have a women ed trying to encourage more women into tech particularly in decision making positions so so I'm at the Academy show talking about that. Um, and then we're also going to be at Betts um, looking, uh, talking about that too. Um, and then I am, I'm slowing down a little bit with my um, public speaking um, because I'm teaching quite a lot at the moment and um, wanting to stay in Dorset a bit more. But I'm also going to be in Brent, I think, um, talking at an inclusion conference in Brent in February. So, yeah, so just, just have a look. Probably best to find me on Twitter and find out where I am um, talking. But um, I do like to talk. Oh, I know. No, I do know. I should mention. Sorry, this is my terrible memory. I should write these things down. Um, I am at a brew ed. I haven't been to a brew ed yet. No, uh, I, I haven't been to one either. So I don't, I've been asked to speak at once. So go on. What, what have they told you about how you go about doing this? So I've been asked to do a brew ed in Hampshire. But you can um, just look up brew ed. I think it's Ed Finch that has been that has been inspired, um, was the inspiration behind Brewhead, which, um, and I'd never got to. Um, so mine is, yeah, in Hampshire in February. Um, but there's all sorts. If you just look up hashtag Brewhead, there, there are lots of um, different ones um, around. So you should be able to find one in your local region. So uh, they're really good. And obviously our Women Ed events are a bit like that as well. They um, We have an Eventbrite page, so you should be able to find a Women Ed ev event in your area too. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you again, Jules, for tonight. Really great to speak to you. Yeah, and, and thank you for bearing with me as the amateur podcaster compared to your uh, radio oh, radio experience and, and oh, vast podcasting. Oh, very good. Okay then, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy, listening to teachers. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. This week I'm excited to have started reading Building Belonging by Kaha Lynch. And this book is subtitled as a systematic approach to school improvement and emotional well-being. And Kahal has an impressive CV. He has worked in a range of settings from mainstream to complex SEND and from EYFS to post-16. He's also been a head teacher, educational consultant and involved in school governance. So we start the book with a foreword from the hugely respected Andy Book, the founder of Leadership Matters, and he sets the tone for the book. So Andy includes a Dylan William quote in his review, which is guaranteed to sit nicely with me. And he starts with everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. And that does underpin a lot of what the book goes into. I've only just started the book uh, as I was finishing, as I said on last week's episode, Daniel Sobel's Leading in Pastoral Care. Uh, but what I've read so far ticks every box for me. And Cahal, and apologies if I am pronouncing your name wrong, has supplemented his extensive experience in the social, emotional and mental health area. And he's coupled this with the best available evidence and research from the areas discussed. And he goes into detail about how to prioritise 
School Improvement, and he regularly refers to what you all know is my favourite research document, namely the EEF Implementation Guide. And as previously stated, he draws on colleague Andy Buck's work. So my favourite chapter so far is chapter three, which begins with this quote um, from Thomas Sapple. You tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. And this quote um, tells us exactly what we need to do in terms of the bigger picture. So he starts exactly as we do with the Teaching Development Trust by auditing staff skill sets and ensuring high quality evidence-based CPD that addresses the needs of all stakeholders. There is a welcome uh, mention for the DFE Standards for Professional Development. And there's also a notable mention for former guest Doug Lamar's Teach Like a Champion work. Uh, and we also have a mention of the consultant Chris Moyes, another educator who I'm a huge admirer of. And there are clear plans to build staff understanding and suggested short, medium and long-term career plans for all staff. There are also suggestions for robust induction programmes and use of staff libraries for CPD materials. And the focus of this book is um, largely implementation and establishing that culture, but we also talk about mental health and belonging. And it's an interesting comment that rapidly improving teaching and learning through Teach Like a Champion, for example, creates a psychosocially safe space where there is an uh, optimum performance can be discussed and staff help to improve. And this can have a protective effect on mental health. So as I said at the beginning, I've only just started this book, but it really has captured my interest. So I'm going to be continuing that, and we'll focus on it a little bit more in next week's podcast. I'm also hoping to speak to Kahal um, soon. So Building Belonging is a John Cat publication, and is available widely everywhere now. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast Pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast Pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Netter. Just talking to teachers. So into the shameless plugs section as normal to wrap up the show. So firstly we have South Shore Academy's Teach Meet on Thursday, January 16th at 4pm till 6pm when you can hear a wide range of speakers from inside and outside Blackpool sharing best practice. So a link is on the show notes. And there's an Eventbrite site for that. Teach Five a Day week is coming up shortly, so have a look at that and check out hashtag Teacher Five a Day on Twitter to find out more. And there's also Teacher Five a Day Park Run, which is on the 7th of December. So if anyone can be involved in that and share those pictures to Twitter. Brewhead Aussie is selling nicely, so there's lots of interest in Brewhead Aussie. Last few tickets for that are available um, for the 1st of February 2020. So again, Eventbrite has all the details for you there. So on the future guests front, we have Greg Ashman, Sam Twistleton, Mary Mayett, and lots, lots more coming up. And we're going to mix up the interviews a little bit, so it won't always be my dulcet tones that you'll hear, but we're sharing those duties out amongst the team at the Teacher Development Trust to give us a more um, diverse range of interviewers and different styles as well. So look out for that coming up soon. Also still looking for correspondents or teachers to come and talk about how the podcast or the guests on the podcast have influenced their practice. If anyone would like to do that, then send me an email. All the details are on my website, which is nailersnatter.co.uk. 
So at this point, I haven't decided who to go for next week, but it's looking most likely because it was a brilliant interview and I really enjoyed speaking to. So looking at Jules Dolby for next week's podcast. Just remains to say again, thank you for listening to Nameless Natter and see you next time. Nameless Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nameless Natter, just talking to teachers.